My text today is from Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 34. Let me read those words for you. Luke 22, verses 24 to 34. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so, but he that is greatest among you let him be as the younger And he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth. Is not he that sitteth at meat? But I am among you as he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom as my father hath appointed unto me that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren." And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day. Before that, thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. For the child of God, there is nothing more glorious, more comforting, and more humbling than the doctrines of God's amazing grace. These doctrines, from beginning to end, teach that God is the author and finisher of salvation. We considered a few weeks ago the doctrine of God's eternal, unconditional election. Today I would like to address, as we find in this particular passage, the doctrine of God's perseverance of the saints. In that little acronym, TULIP, we find these wondrous doctrines taught. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. The flower, as it were, for the Calvinist is tulip. A flower for the Arminian is the daisy. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Dear ones, have you ever felt very far from God? As if that close relationship with which you once had with the living God 
was like it was in another lifetime. Perhaps it was due to some unconfessed sin, which then led to guilt within your life. A guilt-ridden conscience. Your faith in Christ perhaps seemed so weak at that particular point. Maybe it seemed almost dead. Prayer seemed like an exercise in futility, simply going through the motions. Well, I think that the Apostle Peter would be able to say with you, I have been there. I know exactly what you're talking about. On that dark and gloomy night in which Christ was betrayed, Peter, one of the three closest of Christ's apostles, betrayed or denied even knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only lied about knowing Jesus, he not only swore falsely, but he denied and became a false witness against Christ just to save his own neck, to escape humiliation and shame of being associated with this one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine how far from God Peter must have felt at that moment as Jesus was led from the trial room and Peter's eyes met the eyes of the Lord Jesus and the Scripture says Peter wept bitterly. He had just denied the Lord. The shameful tears, the guilt, the sense of separation and deadness within his soul. Peter fell flat on his face. He committed a very serious sin indeed. I doubt he ever felt farther from the Lord than he did at that time. But the story does not end there. Forty days later, this same man, Peter, now forgiven restored and filled with the Holy Spirit, stood before thousands in Jerusalem and proclaimed unashamedly, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. What made the difference? What made the difference in the midst of those 40 days? But Peter, on the night in which the Lord was betrayed and denied, the Peter who stood before the thousands to proclaim these truths. Well, we might say three things made the difference, and we'll focus our attention in the sermon today upon the third of these three. But these three things made the difference. Jesus was alive. The Apostle Peter was a witness to the glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was no longer dead. And we celebrate His resurrection today, dear ones. We celebrate His glorious resurrection every Lord's Day. That is the reason why the Sabbath was moved from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. This is the beginning of a new creation through Jesus Christ. 
The second reason that made a difference in Peter was that Jesus had personally restored him back into fellowship, we find in John 21. You remember Peter went fishing and Jesus came looking for Peter. And those three times he asked Peter, Do you, Peter, love me more than these? And each time the Lord gave him a commission to feed his sheep. The Lord restored Peter. But thirdly, the third reason that made a difference in Peter's life is that Christ had promised Peter that his faith would not fail. It may falter. It may be knocked down to the mat. But his faith could not be knocked out. Peter, with his faith in Jesus Christ, would stand again and be victorious in Christ. And dear ones, the same promise is yours. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, your faith cannot fail. Even though you may be faced with the death of a loved one, even though you may be faced with a prolonged illness, and how many times we see... And when we go through affliction, and when our body is weak, how the enemy attacks us. When we are under such severe stress from financial difficulties, how the enemy attacks our faith and would undermine our faith. When there are problems within a family, when we're not getting along with our spouse or with our children, how the enemy will attack our faith. The Lord promises you will be disciplined by the Lord as a father does a child. And it will hurt. It will pain. But even through that, because you are His child, God will refine you and He will refine your faith, but He will not destroy your faith. If you have your Bibles opened, I'm going to be focusing my attention primarily from Luke 22 and verses 31 through 34. As we seek to understand why the faith of the child of God cannot be destroyed. Now the first reason in answer to that question is that our faith cannot be destroyed because... First of all, Satan's power is limited. Satan's power is limited and God's power to save is unlimited. In verse 31, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Now, it's interesting if you, one of the advantages of using a King James Version here is that you can see the difference in the pronouns, the second person pronouns that are used in verse 31 and 32. You find, even though it appears when he says, Simon, Simon, that he's speaking only to Peter, but he uses, notice the pronoun you in verse 31. And so he's saying, speaking 
particularly to Simon, but including all of the disciples in this particular warning. Satan hath desired to have you, all of you, that he may sift all of you as wheat. When you come to verse 32, he speaks specifically to Peter, but I have prayed for thee. That's in the singular second person pronoun. Jesus had just celebrated the Lord's Supper with his disciples in the previous verses. And immediately after the Lord's Supper arises a dispute amongst the disciples over who is the greatest amongst them. Now you talk, talk about anticlimactic type of ending to the Lord's Supper, immediately after celebrating this most holy meal with the Lord Jesus, here these very weak and sinful beings, these disciples, immediately get into an argument over, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, that seems so infantile and so childish. We can't hardly imagine this. And yet this was going on amongst these very weak and frail disciples. You know, we ought to take encouragement. There is hope for all of us yet. In maturing and sanctification in the Lord, when we see this kind of thing going on in the lives of those who became the ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ and turned the world upside down through confidence and courage in Jesus Christ. Jesus settles the dispute very quickly when he reveals the greatest disciple is the one who is the greatest servant. In God's kingdom, the Lord exalts the humble but abases the proud. And perhaps one of the most proud of the disciples was Peter himself. After Jesus telling Peter that he would temporarily fall away from Christ, Peter proudly declares to Jesus in verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Now, I'm sure that Peter was sincere when he said that. But I believe he was tremendously confident in the strength of his own faith and overconfident. He had a great deal of self-confidence, but his faith in Christ would be revealed to be indeed very, very weak. And I want to simply point out to you again, dear ones, it is not the strength of faith that saves anyone. It is the object of one's faith, no matter how weak one's faith may be. It is the Lord Jesus Christ that redeems and saves. And faith is simply the instrumental means that God has ordained in receiving that great salvation. And so let us never confuse weak faith with false faith or no faith. See, all true faith, no matter how weak it is, true faith consists of knowledge of the living God 
assent to the truthfulness of that knowledge. And thirdly, trust. Trusting the living God to save and redeem. And Jesus answered Peter when he said, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. I'm sure that came as quite a shock to Peter. Probably could have knocked him over with a feather. And Satan would take advantage of Peter's pride in order to seek to destroy his faith in Jesus Christ. For as we read in verse 31, which we have already alluded to, we note that Satan, it says, hath desired to have you, all of you, but particularly Simon, Simon, particularly Peter, that he may sift you as wheat. Satan hath desired to, ha- to have you. That's kind of a innocuous word, desired. It's really a much stronger word. It's really the idea that Satan has earnestly begged to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. He has gone seeking permission from God. Now, does the greater seek permission from the lesser? Or does the lesser seek permission from the greater? In this very small statement, we find very clearly that one reason why Peter's faith could not be destroyed was because Satan had to obtain permission even to sift Peter like wheat from the living God. God is sovereign. God is able to keep all of his people. And he will keep all of his people. All of Satan's power, dear ones, is delegated to him. He has no inherent innate power that God did not give to him. And he can only go as far as God will permit him or allow him to go. And so we need not fear the enemy. We need fear God. We need place our confidence in the living God. Satan can never, ever destroy the faith of the child of God. He's like a dog on a leash. Sometimes God lets him out a little longer on the leash. And at other times, God brings the leash very close to himself so that he seems not to have any liberty at all. The Bible says that he is like a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. And yet to the child of God, who is like a Daniel, God shuts the mouth of the lion, so that all that it is is a roar. He cannot devour and eat the child of God. We think of 
that Old Testament saint, Job, who illustrates the same point. You remember in Job's case how Satan had to obtain permission in order to bring upon Job all of the trials and the temptations that came into his life. You remember how Satan said, you have hedged Job about. Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And how God then gave him permission to do exactly that. He took his possessions. He took all of his children. And then finally, God gave him permission to take away his health. And even his wife seemed to turn his back on Job. You see, dear ones, it's God who holds you in his hand. And no one, not even Satan, can snatch the child of God from out of God's almighty hands. In John chapter 10, verse 26. The Lord Jesus says to the Pharisees, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father, which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. We find great comfort and encouragement that those who are in the hands of the Almighty can never be plucked from His hand. What an encouragement this is to God's people to rest upon the promises of God that God will sustain, that God will keep His people. In our confession of faith, we find these words concerning this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. This is chapter 17 in section 1. They whom God hath accepted in His beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Yes, Satan may desire to sift you like wheat, as he did Peter. And the sifting process is an extremely painful process. The sifting process that Jesus refers to has in view taking that whole kernel of wheat and beating it until the chaff is separated from the kernel and then tossing it up in the air where the wind blows the chaff away and what falls down to the ground is the heavier kernel of wheat 
Dear ones, in our Christian life, we can be sifted like that where we feel like we're just being pounded and beat. And God is using it to separate the chaff from our lives. So the purity of, of faith and knowledge of the living God may shine forth. Again, we read from the Confession of Faith in the third section of the same chapter. Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. That's the sifting process that Christians do indeed go through. Yes, Satan may want indeed to put you through that sifting process, but Jesus has promised in John 6 that it is the will of God that every one of you who believes in Him will not perish, but will be raised from the dead on that final day to enjoy everlasting life. If there is even one of Christ's sheep that is not in the fold on that last day, Christ will have broken His Word. God will have broken His Word but every single sheep that He has chosen from eternity and sent His Son to, to die for and sent His Spirit to apply that redemption unto will be saved. It may be Satan's desire to destroy the wheat, but he can't do it because it is God's infallible, inviolable will to refine the wheat. The second point. Not only is Satan limited, and that is why he cannot destroy the faith of the child of God. Secondly, the faith of the child of God cannot be destroyed because Christ's prayers are always effectual. Christ's prayers are always answered. In Luke chapter 22, again, Look with me at verse 32, the first part of verse 32. Jesus says, But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. That was Christ's prayer on behalf of Peter. <clears throat> According to 1 John chapter 5, we find that all prayers that are prayed according to God's will will be answered and heard. 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have in Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. 
And if we know that he hear us, we whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. And so we might say that that condition for effectual prayers is praying according to the will of God. Did Jesus ever pray contrary to the will of God? Quite the contrary. He prayed always according to the will of God. We find, for example, in John chapter 8, John 8.29, there was nothing in Jesus' life that Jesus ever did that displeased the Lord God. That would certainly imply or include his prayer life. John 8.29, Jesus says, And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Not some of the time, but I always do that which pleases God. And again, in John 11.42, John 11.42, at the grave of Lazarus, Jesus prays before commanding Lazarus to come forth, and this is Jesus' prayer. Father, I thank Thee that Thou hast heard me, and I knew that Thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus says in praying to the Father, thou hast heard me and thou dost always hear me when I pray. And so all we need then to ask is, did Jesus pray that Peter's faith not fail, because his prayers are always answered. He did indeed pray that. Therefore, Peter's faith would not fail. The word that's used here for not fail is really a word, eclipo, which means eclipse. Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not be totally eclipsed that it would not cease, that it would not disappear behind a shadow utterly. And therefore, it could not fail and it did not fail. Oh, dear ones, the effectiveness, the efficaciousness of Christ's high priestly prayers for His people. You see, this isn't simply going on for the Apostle Peter. You might say, well, of course, Peter... Uh, Peter's faith did not fail. Look who Peter was. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. The dear ones, the Lord Jesus not only prays for Peter's faith not to fail, He prays as well that your faith will not fail as well. You see, Peter was just like you, chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. He was chosen in spite of his enmity against God. He was chosen in spite of all of his sin to be a child of God. He was as much lost apart from the grace of God as you are, as I am. And in fact, in John chapter 17, the Lord Jesus makes it very clear that he prays not only for the apostles, he prays for all of those who would believe 
through the word of the apostles. When Jesus prays in John 17, verse 20, Jesus says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. And what was Christ's prayer? Verse 24, Father, I will, I will, not simply I wish, I will, that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. That was his prayer. That all of those whom thou hast given unto me be with me in that final state of glory in heaven. And dear ones, that's a prayer that will not go unanswered. Jesus died for you. Dear ones, he was raised from the dead for you. He ascended into heaven to sit as your prophet, priest, and king. And even now, the Word of God tells us in Hebrews 7.25 that the Lord Jesus Christ in His high priestly ministry is doing exactly that. Wherefore, He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ, dear ones, is praying moment by moment for you that your faith not fail. Just as he prayed for Peter. Jesus is continuously interceding and God the Father will answer that prayer. That your faith not fail. You have a prayer warrior in heaven who never stops praying. I'm reminded of how in the Old Testament, you remember when Israel left Egypt and they came into contact with the Amalekites and Moses went upon the mount. And as he lifted his hands in intercession for the people of God, Israel was victorious over the Amalekites. And when his arms became weak and they dropped to his side because of the weakness of his flesh, the Amalekites, on the other hand, would become victorious over Israel. And how Aaron and Hur gathered on each side to hold up the hands of Moses toward heaven. And how God brought a mighty victory. Well, dear ones, no one needs to hold the almighty hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. His hands continuously are held up and victory will be the lot of His people. Finally, we have seen that your faith cannot fail because Satan is limited Secondly, because Christ's prayers are always efficacious. And finally, thirdly, your faith cannot be destroyed. It cannot fail because the true Christian always perseveres in faith.
No exceptions. The true Christian always perseveres. Though he may stumble, though he may fall, he always perseveres in the faith. Again, turn with me to Luke 32 or 22. And notice these words of the Lord Jesus. At the end of verse 32, Jesus says to Peter, And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. You notice the Lord Jesus doesn't say, And if thou art converted, if thou art turned again back to the faith, back to the truth, He says, when thou art turned again, when thou dost repent, when thou art restored again into fellowship with the living God, strengthen thy brethren. You see, there was never any doubt as to whether Peter would be restored. And the very grammatical language, the very words that the Lord uses indicate that that was the case. It was never a question of, I wonder whether Peter will actually turn again. So you see, dear ones, the issue is not simply when we talk about the perseverance of the saints, it's not once saved, always saved kind of mentality. Once saved, then you can live any way that you want to live. Never follow the Lord. No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, when thou art restored, then strengthen thy brethren. Because when the Christian falls, he will be restored. He will not continue in his sin, his disobedience, his rebellion against the living God. genuine faith in Jesus Christ dear ones keeps on keeping on it doesn't give up it never gives up no matter how weak it may appear at times it never gives up saw a rather funny cartoon when I was in Prince George this last week of a frog that was being swallowed by a bird. And all that was visible in the bird's beak was basically from the frog's neck back. His head was already inside of the bird's mouth. Couldn't see it. So he is about ready to go down, it would appear. But he had a hold. His hands were still free. And he had a hold of the bird's neck. And he was choking this bird to death. And underneath it says, never give up. (laughs) Never give up. You see, he couldn't be swallowed as long as he had that bird by the neck. Jesus says to his people, never give up. God will cause you to persevere. God will strengthen your faith. And you see, that was the difference between Peter and Judas. Both of them grievously sinned against the Lord God. But Peter demonstrated his genuine faith in Jesus Christ by repenting of his sin and continuing in faith. 
whereas Judas demonstrated his pretended faith by not repenting of his sin. In the Confession of Faith, one more section that I would read, and it's the second section. This section tells us why God's people can never be cast away, why their faith will always persevere. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. You see, if it depended upon your will or mine, yes, we could lose our salvation. It depends upon the unchangeable will of God. His unchangeable love for His people that we can never be cast away. And furthermore, it says, it depends upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ. Christ's merit, not yours, is the basis of your salvation. The abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them. You see... God's seed, God's nature has been implanted in the child of God by the Holy Spirit. And the nature of the covenant of grace. In the covenant of grace, as we have read from Genesis chapter 15 today, interestingly again, it was not Abraham and God who walked together through those divided parts of the animal. But God, who Himself, through the image of this torch, walked through. God will be faithful, dear ones, to the covenant which He has made with His Son. And His Son will be faithful to save every one of those for whom Christ has died. From all, from all of these truths, which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. That is why we can have certainty that we belong to the Lord, and if we belong to the Lord, we will always belong to the Lord. The word the Lord proclaims in Proverbs 24:16, for though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. But the wicked are brought down by calamity. The righteous man falls, but he gets up. Even if you fall seven times, but the wicked fall down and do not get back up. And in conclusion, let me tell you, dear ones, where the strength to persevere in your faith comes from. God's Word declares in Romans 15.5, Now may the God who gives perseverance. Perseverance comes as a grace from the living God. It's a constituent part of your faith that God has freely given to you. It is not 
an ending faith. It is not a temporal faith. It is a never-ending faith that issues in eternal life. God causes you to persevere, dear ones. And though we find in Philippians 2 that we are to work out our own salvation by fear and trembling, we find out that it is God who works within us both to will and to do His good pleasure. All who begin in faith will finish the race. None will fall by the wayside. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. The Lord Jesus promised Peter that he would again rise to strengthen his brethren. And the Lord calls you as well, dear ones. Whatever you have gone through, use what you have gone through to strengthen the brethren. Let not even one experience that you have passed through where you have suffered, where you have been tested, where you have been tried and sifted like wheat to be futile and vain in your life, but learn from it and encourage and strengthen the brethren. Let us stand in prayer. Our Father in heaven, Thou art the God who gives perseverance. Thou art the God of our faith. Our complete confidence and trust is in Thee. And though, Father, it may seem that we have simply the faith of a mustard seed, when that faith is in Thee, we can say to the mountain, Be removed and cast into the sea, and it will be so. We are thankful, our God, that Thou hast redeemed us. And Lord, we pray that this day Thou would encourage Thy people, that Thou would cause Thy people to, to rest, to trust Thee, to see that their sifting process is for the purpose of strengthening not only themselves, but the brethren. O oh God, we pray that we would not cast away our confidence in Thee, our faith in Thee. Lord, we praise Thee that, that Thy Spirit abides with us. And we ask, O oh God, that this day and for the rest of our lives, as long as Thou dost give us breath upon this earth, that Thou would teach us to number our days, that we may order our lives according to Thy wisdom that we might not waste our time, but that, Lord, we would redeem the time. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. 
Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.